This morning we return to our sermon series on 1 Peter. Uh, We've been a little bit intermittent over the last couple of weeks, and it's good now to be back into 1 Peter where we've got a couple of weeks consecutively here where we can work through uh, certainly the rest of chapter 4. So I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. The passage uh, is also in your bulletin or on page 1016 of those blue pew Bibles that you have in front of you. Okay, so the last two sermons from this wonderfully relevant letter that we have given to us have admittedly been uh, very dense sermons. They are from very significant sections here in First Peter. It started with First uh, Peter 3.18 and then continued through uh, chapter 4, verse 6. They are really rich and robust sections of Scripture for us, but they are dense. Uh, in them, Peter, we with Peter, considered the humiliation of Christ, the suffering of Christ, and then the exaltation of Christ as well. And we saw, particularly in the last section, which was now two weeks ago that we looked at together, we saw that we are called to be armed as the people of God with the suffering of Christ, with thinking about suffering in the way that Jesus thought about suffering, by seeing our suffering in the context of what Jesus himself has undergone for the sake of his people. You'll recall just chapter 4, verse 1 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with it is the instruction that we find here in the text. And what we saw with that is to arm ourselves with thinking about suffering the way Jesus thought about suffering is to recognize that as Jesus was faced with his own suffering, which ultimately would take him to the pinnacle of that suffering or the depth of that suffering on the cross itself, that while it was certainly true that he had to suffer, that it was a necessity that he suffer, that it must take place in this way, it wasn't only the cross, it wasn't only the suffering that he was looking at. While he was looking at that, he was also able to look beyond it, to look on the other side of the cross and to see the exaltation that was to follow from the cross. So he didn't only see the cross, he saw the exaltation that was part of the cross as well, the fruit that would come from it. And the entirety of that, the entirety of that humiliation, of that exaltation that would follow, shaped. It shaped how he lived, it shaped what he did in this world before the world, and it shaped what he did and how he spoke for the sake of his people, for the sake of his flock. Now, when we come to the passage that is before us today, what we're going to consider is the now of living in light of that. The now of living with ourselves armed with thinking about suffering the way Jesus approached suffering as well. In light of these ultimate purposes of God, the ultimate ends of God. This is a, uh, if you will, much more straightforward passage 
than the ones we've been in the last two times. Uh, but don't mistake it, it's not less weighty, it's just a little bit more straightforward and clearer and easier for us to grasp as we read it. So here now the very Word of God, just three verses for us this morning. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The end. That's our title for this morning. The end. Lord, we pray that as we consider your word today, uh, that you would once again be with us, that you would once again shepherd our hearts. Jesus, we pray that you would keep both your humiliation and your exaltation before us this morning, and that we would hope, along with all of your saints and the resurrection and the eternal life to come, and that that would guide us in how to live our lives now. Help us then, we ask in your name. Amen. All right, so here's the question. What comes to your mind when you hear the phrase that began this section of Scripture? When you hear, the end of all things is at hand. What, what, what images does that conjure up in your mind? What does that make you start thinking about? The end of all things is at hand. Now, here we are, we're sitting together in church, we're in a context of uh, worship and we're hearing the Word of God. So hopefully and appropriately, I would think that for some of you, when you hear the end of all things is at hand, that you would think of other passages in Scripture that reflect that same kind of idea, that they would pop into your mind right now, or perhaps, you know, we've been singing hymns, obviously, uh, in the service already, but perhaps hymns come into your mind that reflect on this idea. Uh, Rock of Ages has that line in it, when I soar to worlds unknown, uh, or it is well with my soul, uh, talks about when the, when the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, uh, or, uh, or on Christ's solid rock I sam, uh, stand, uh, has that line in it as well, when he shall come with trumpet sound. And maybe some of those things, when you, when you hear the end of all things is at hand, maybe some of those are the things that come into your minds. But there may be some other things as well. And just to give a couple of examples for me, when I thought about the sermon and I thought about uh, the text, perhaps uh, if you're a little bit younger, you think of uh, the Lord of the Rings series, and you, you, you think about the end or one of the ends to the final movie uh, in the Lord of the Rings series where uh, uh, Sam and Frodo are sitting with the lava pouring all around them. And uh, Frodo says, I'm glad to be with you, Samwise Ganji, here at the end of all things. Maybe that pops into your mind when you hear a phrase like that. Maybe some dystopian novel that you've read uh, comes to mind, or uh, some sci-fi movie, or uh, an apocalyptic movie comes into your head, or climate predictions that are uh, out there, or nuclear war, and uh, testings that take place, maybe those things come into uh, your mind. 
perhaps even, perhaps even what might pop into our mind is the idea of a person who is not quite all together in their minds, doesn't have anything, everything quite uh, sorted out in their lives, and they sit on the side of the road with a little sign that says, the end is near. The end is near. The, the, the end is coming soon. What pops into your mind when you hear that phrase? Typically, whatever it is, the thoughts of the end are somewhat vague. They're somewhat amorphous for us, and they certainly are distant. They're, they're not things that we typically think of as being imminent. When we think of the end of all things being at hand, uh, the end of all things seems to be something way out there as opposed to that which is on hand. But for the writers of the Word of God, it's actually for them important and essential to bring this idea of the end, of the end of all things, to bring that close, to, to if you will, reach through time and grab hold not only of the past, but to grab hold of the future and, and, and pull it right in front of us, pull it right in front of our eyes to put it in the forefront of our minds. And that's certainly part of the case that we've seen in First Peter as a whole. Uh, and likewise, it's something that we would see if we looked at a number of authors, uh, both Old Testament and New Testament, we'd see that same kind of thing taking place. Why do they do it? Well, let's just, let's just make sure we, we, we answer why they don't do it. Reasons why they do not do, they, they don't do it for these reasons. They don't do it for the sake of instigating some kind of a panic. They don't do it so that we as the people of God can disengage from our lives in this world, can kind of shuck off or slough off the responsibilities, the commitments that we have in this world. They don't do it so we can say, well, I guess I don't need to save for retirement, or I guess I can spend my retirement because after all, the end of the world, the end of all things is at hand. They don't say it so that, well, I guess I don't need to study for the finals that are coming up in a couple of weeks because after all, the end of all things are, is at hand. They don't say it for the sake of hysteria or some kind of frenzy. And certainly they don't say it for the sake of trying to provoke us into an effort to figure out the date, to set up some charts by which we can map onto them various world events and come to a conclusion that the end is right here, that this is when the end is going to take place. No, God's word constantly and consistently brings the end into view so that we live well and wisely now. That's the purpose. The purpose of reaching through time, through history, and bringing the end up to here is to say, Christians, you must live in light of this. You must guide your lives accordingly. One writer uh, that I was looking at this week put it this way, and I found this to be a particularly helpful metaphor, a, a particularly helpful way to think about it. The idea that he had is that it is as if in the passages such as the one that is before us today, the Bible hands us, and here's, here's the quote, an eschatological compass for navigating life. An eschatological compass 
for navigating life. Now, eschatological, just the study of the end times, the study of last things. So an eschatological compass, a, a, a directional compass with respect to time that helps us to see, oh, right, okay, this is what is happening. This is where everything ends. This is how we then fit into the picture of what is taking place. And so Peter writes to the church and says to them, the end of all things is at hand. Now, in one sense, it is appropriate to think about that in the way that I've kind of intimated thus far in the sermon and in the way that perhaps is the first thing that pops into your head when you're thinking about this, which is to say it's, it's certainly appropriate for us to see this as a temporal reference, as a reference to events that take place at the end of time the return of Christ, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, the judgment of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, as the, as the New Testament understands it, the last days or the last times or the end times have been inaugurated by the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And recall, for example, that Peter himself in Acts chapter 2 preached on this. Peter drew from uh, Joel the prophet and saw that these days that they were living in were in fact the beginning of the last days. And so it's appropriate for us to see this as a temporal reference. That's certainly true in some of what Peter has written already in this letter, that he's looking at those events that will take place at the end time and showing us how significant they are for how we live now. But, but in addition to the temporal aspect when we think of the end of all things is at hand. The idea of this is most certainly, and perhaps even more so, a reference to the idea that in Jesus, the goal of all things, the objective of all things, the, the purpose, the outcome of all things, all of that has been made clear in Jesus himself. So in the story of Jesus is, if you will, the, the, the true north for the eschatological compass. If you want to go back to that analogy and, and, and put that in there. In the story of Christ, his humiliation through his exaltation, his incarnation, his life in this world and all of the suffering uh, that it incorporated, on through to the sufferings, on through to the trial and to the humiliation and to the shame and to the death and the burial unto the resurrection and the ascension to the right hand of God and being enthroned at the right hand of God. All of that is the point of reference for everything else in history. All other things find their understanding in the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. Now, for Peter, the main thing that he has been talking about, and we'll use this as one example of this, but you could multiply it to others as well, one of the hardest things to understand in the world, whether you are a Christian or not, one of the perennial questions is the question of suffering. 
Why is there such suffering in the world? Why is there this evil in the world that creates such suffering in the world? And Peter is saying, when you take the suffering that you and I experience in this world, it makes sense with reference to the humiliation, the suffering, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ himself. Even suffering is shown to be something that is within the plan of God when you see it within the work of Jesus Christ himself. The idea here and the idea that we have been uh, looking at through 1 Peter and the idea uh, that we saw even in the uh, sermon uh, that we considered, the sermon of Paul that we considered uh, for Easter last Sunday, is that in the Old Testament, in the history of the world prior to the coming of Christ, a story was being developed. Something was being built. Something was being developed throughout history. And it was somewhat unclear. It was somewhat unclear what it would be, what is being built. And it was somewhat unclear as to how the story would unfold, how things would be accomplished. And biblically speaking, you can take the past prior to the New Testament and you can use the word mystery to describe it. There was a mystery that was characteristic of the Old Testament. It was hard to put together all of the things that were there. But now, now, the end is at hand. The, the goal, the purposes of God have been revealed. They are no longer concealed. They are no longer a mystery. They are a mystery revealed. And so when, when Peter then is saying the end of all things is at hand, what he's saying is, you believers, you understand. You, by the grace of God, see what the end of all things is. Now, please understand this correctly. We're not trying to say here, and Peter is not trying to say here, that that means you're going to be able to take every single event that happens in your life and figure out all of the reasons why that took place. And certainly that's true with suffering as well. But Peter is saying, listen, with this eschatological compass in your hand, you are going to be able to understand the broad purposes of God. And even if you can't figure out the particular one that's going on in your life at this particular moment, you can trust that that fits within the plan of God Almighty. So with this compass in hand, then Peter goes on more positively to speak. He gives us, if you will, four, I'm going to call them application arenas in light of the coming and our understanding, the understood end that is going to take place. And, and there are three of them that are in our passage this morning, three of these application arenas and a fourth that we will get to uh, next week. We'll save it uh, verses 10 and 11 uh, for next week. And conveniently enough, our three arenas of application that Peter gives to us are uh, found in each one of the verses, verses 7, 8, and 9. So, First thing, here's the way we're going to set up every one of these. The end of all things is at hand, therefore. Therefore, continuing now in verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
Now those two words, self-controlled and sober-minded, they kind of go together. They are really here expressing one thought. And the idea is simply this. In light of the end of all things, being understood, being revealed, being taken place, having taken place in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, think well. Think well. Think appropriately. Keep your head. Keep your wits about you. The end of all things is at hand. Don't be chicken little at the end of all things. Don't run around saying the world's coming to an end, the sky is falling. Instead, you have to keep your wits about you. Three times in this letter, we are exhorted to this same kind of thing from Peter. One of them we've already come across in uh, chapter 1, verse 13. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. And uh, remember, literally, that's girding up the loins of your mind, be sober-minded. And then we haven't gotten to this one yet, but in uh, chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, is the command that we find in chapter 5, verse 8. And then here in our passage as well, don't go crazy. The end of all things is at hand, and I am telling you, don't get hysterical about that, is what Peter is saying. Instead, understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, one, I think, maybe a, a helpful picture for us to kind of get a sense of what it means to be sober-minded is found in uh, the Gospels. It's uh, the story of the Gerasene demoniac, Legion, and when he is found by the people after Jesus has removed the demons from him, they find him to be in his right mind, which is to say they find him to be sober-minded at that point. Now, sobriety here, uh, the, the, the main emphasis is, of course, not on not being drunk, but it would certainly include not drinking to excess. But the emphasis here is more just the way of thinking, the way of thoughtfully, seriously, and carefully thinking about life in this world. The hope and the power of the gospel is the seed of good thinking. And, and don't miss where this leads here in this verse that Peter has given to us. A person who thinks well and understands well that all things are in the hand of Jesus Christ, that the end of all things is seen in the humiliation and exaltation. A person who thinks like that is a person who prays. Who prays. That's what it says here, for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It is hard to pray when our minds are unsettled. It's easy for our thoughts to go any number of directions when we are anxious about things. And so Peter is saying, for the sake of your prayers, you have to understand the end of all things, the consummation of all things is in Jesus Christ, in his completed work on our behalf so that you will be able to pray. And prayer as a priority is understood when we see the end of all things in Jesus. 
Remember, remember the one who is instructing us here. Peter was literally at the end with Jesus. Remember what John says. John says, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Well, on that same night, Jesus took the disciples to the garden, and he took in particular Peter, James, and John, and he pulled them a little bit closer than the others. And what was the command that he gave to them at that moment? Be watchful and pray. Be watchful and pray. Peter knows. Peter knows that it's easier to sleep. Peter knows that it's easier to let your mind be distracted than it is to pray. And he says, so sober-mindedness for the sake of your prayers. All right, the next one that is here. We'll begin it in the same way. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, tensions can rise when the end is near. When the end of a semester is near, tensions can rise. When graduation is pending, tensions can rise. When a great event is approaching, tensions can rise. When a project is due, tensions can rise. If you watch any kind of sports and you get to the end of that particular sport, that match, that game, whatever it is, the tensions rise as you come towards the end. And what can happen when the tensions rise, when, in the case of Peter, there's suffering all around you, there's unjust suffering all around you, when you see people being treated and yourself being treated in a way that seems inconsistent with the very will of God, instead of those who do good being rewarded, you see those who do good being punished and those who do evil being the ones who get the reward. And when you see that over and over again, there's a temptation that exists. And the temptation is to be mad, to be angry about it, to hate, to let your love grow cold. This is the way that Jesus put it when he was warning in Matthew chapter 24 about the end. Just context here before the verse that I want to read. Then, this is Jesus speaking, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Do you see many people being led astray? Do you see people who hate you for the sake of your faith? Verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. When lawlessness in the culture, in the surrounding community is increased, the love of many will grow cold. Verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is what Peter is speaking into. He's speaking into that reality, saying to the church, listen, there's going to be a temptation when things get bad for your love to grow cold towards one another, towards your neighbor, towards the Lord himself. And Peter speaks into this, and he sets the priority 
above all. And that's priority setting words. Above all, keep loving earnestly. Now, this is the third time in this letter that this command, this idea of loving all has been addressed. But here in this section, we have a beautiful clause that is added to it. And the clause, you see it right in front of you, is since love covers a multitude of sins. Why should you do this? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter is not an idealist. He's not an idealist in this sense. He doesn't think that because he has given us a command that the, the end is at hand, the end of all things is at hand. He doesn't think for one second that therefore all of us here in this room or in uh, Turkey to those whom he was addressing, he doesn't think that therefore we're always going to choose to do the right thing. We're not going to always do that perfectly. We should strive for it. And he's giving us the directions for us, but it won't always take place in a way that is perfect. This community will not always think and speak and act perfectly. We will, in fact, sin against each other. In all number of ways, we will sin against each other. We will irritate each other. The longer you are part of this community, the more irritating some of us will become to you. That is the reality. That is the reality of life in the church of Jesus Christ. And while this passage doesn't say all there is to say about reconciliation, it provides an incredibly valuable principle and strategy, approach for life between church members, between friends, uh, between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between brothers and sisters as well. Peter is drawing on something here. He's drawing on language and he's drawing on teaching that comes from the Old Testament from two Proverbs in particular. I don't want you to turn right now to them, but you can write down the references and look them up later as you would desire. Here are the two references. Uh, Proverbs 10, verse 12, it says this. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Okay, let me read it again. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Now, let me read another one uh, for you as well. Uh, Proverbs 19, verse 11. Proverbs 19, 11 says this. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. To overlook an offense. To see... Let me just say it this way, that somebody in the church, once again, has done something against me. That, that they didn't do what they said they would do. That they didn't thank me for doing what I did do. That they blamed me for something that I didn't do. Or they just said or didn't say something to me, and it's made me angry. And the idea here is, it's your glory to see that, okay, I'm overlooking that. I'm overlooking that. I am not going to be the one who takes that thing and allows it to blossom under my watch. Now, 
Uh, two months ago, in an evening uh, sermon, I, I took just this phrase and preached on just this phrase because it required an entire uh, sermon to work through all of the implications with it. Obviously, I'm not going to do that again this morning, but we have to just dig into this just a little bit to make sure we understand with caution, but with great value, what is being said here and what is being told to us. If I can use the, 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 the passage from Proverbs 10, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Let's, let's just work with that one for a moment. The idea of hatred here is that hatred takes a bad situation and makes it worse. It takes a bad situation and makes it worse. It exacerbates the situation. It inflames the situation. It takes the smoldering embers of something that was done, something that was wrong, and it spreads them onto dry brush by telling other people, by refusing to forgive, by refusing to overlook it, by harping on that particular thing. Hatred makes things worse. It takes sin and it multiplies it. And that increases the disdain, the strife, that is amongst people. Love does the opposite of that. That's what hatred does. That's the way hatred works. Love does the opposite of that. It covers. It overlooks. It refuses to let sin define the relationship. And it is mighty easy to allow sin to define the relationship and say, that's it. I'm stepping back. It refuses to take the most recent example of sin from someone against you and use that as the excuse to bring up the entire litany of prior sins that have been committed by said person against you. Love says, I won't do that. Love says, I will not allow that to happen. Instead, love covers. Love overlooks those things. This is an incredibly powerful tool. And, and understand the point of reference. You know all things end in Jesus Christ. You know the purposes of Christ. That's not a mystery to you. That's not unknown to you. You know why Christ came into the world. For God the Father so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world. You know the love that Christ had for his disciples. You know that having loved his own, he loved them to the end. You know that Jesus loves you. This you know because the Bible tells you so. You know of the love of Christ. You know of the commands of Scripture with respect to love. You know that heaven is a world of love. You know the end of all things. Here it is right here. It's a world of love purchased for you by the blood of Jesus Christ, and it's right here in front of you. You know it. And what Peter is perhaps saying here in a way is, bank on it. You can make withdrawals on that love that is seen for us, displayed for us, in the humiliation, in the exaltation of Jesus Christ, withdraw all you want. It's an inexhaustible supply. Go ahead and take it. Ladle it out. Ladle out as much of it as you want to ladle out of it, and there's plenty more to come there. Use what you know of the end that God has put in front of you, a Savior who loves you, and pour it out. Use it to cover. 
Use it to cover. Use it to pass over, to not consider sins that have been done against you. You know how much love and grace and mercy have been shown to you. You know it. And go ahead and take it and use it. Now, there's caveats here. And I, I wish I didn't have to mention these because I'm, I'm afraid it will distract from the power of it. But these are actually important, and they're good caveats for us to understand. So if you will, let me, just, let me just give you a couple of caveats in this statement right here so that we don't understand it. Not to minimize it, but to allow its power to exist for it. Caveat number one, the only way that sins are ultimately covered is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus came into the world because of the love of the Father. So in one sense, you can say it is, in fact, the love of God that covers over sins, as long as we understand that that takes place, not just because God says, I'm loving, I love everybody, it doesn't matter what you do, do whatever you want, I love everybody, but through the working of Jesus Christ. So ultimately and finally and truly, sins are only covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's point number one or caveat number one. Point number two as a caveat is to say, listen, sometimes in this world, confrontation is going to be necessary when dealing with sin. Overlooking doesn't, ever mean, doesn't always mean that you don't ever talk to somebody about a particular sin or something that has taken place. Confrontation is going to be necessary and sometimes discipline is going to be necessary as well to work through a particular issue. Third thing, third caveat, is that, and, and we really need to say this clearly uh, in all ages, but particularly in our age as well, is that this is not some kind of an excuse to sweep evil under the rug uh, or to kind of be hush-hush regarding harmful sin. In other words, this passage isn't a justification for a cover-up. Okay, so both, it, well, in Hebrew and in Greek and in English as well, covering can be a bad thing, right? It can be a really bad thing if you've covered up something in an inappropriate kind of way, and covering in each of the languages as well can be a good thing. It can be appropriate as a thing. So, I don't, I don't have time to work all, through all of those, but just realize that those caveats are there. Now, come back to this. Peter doesn't say it with any caveats at all. He just says, love one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter says, take this out, man. Use this thing. Practice this thing. Drive this thing to break the cycle of sin that leads to hatred and separation. So finally, he has a last application arena for us today. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I, I have to admit that in a passage like this in particular, I love the, ordinary, the ordinariness of the trifold application and plus one that Peter is giving to us in this moment. The end is at hand. Now, with an introduction like that, the end is at hand, therefore, you might really expect something dramatic to follow that, something grand, something huge to follow this statement. The end of all things is at hand, therefore we have to, and Peter says to us, you have to be clear-headed and you have to pray. You have to love one another and allow that love to cover sins, and you have to be hospitable to one another without grumbling, because it's easy to grumble. 
It's easy to grumble in your hospitality. How precious is this simple idea of hospitality? Consider this. Consider what your Lord said. When the Lord described that last judgment, he used these words. To those on his right, the king will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And you welcomed me. The last things, the final judgment is out there. And one of the things that is stated in the final judgment is how to do with hospitality. Did you welcome the stranger? Did you welcome people into your life? Hospitality is a hallmark of the Christian community. It's a gateway. It's an open door. Hospitality involves uh, an open-heartedness. It is not just an invitation to come into your home, although it may be that uh, and can be that very specifically. It's a heart invitation. It is, it is a spirit of welcome. Here's the way Paul says it, and I think one of the most beautiful passages that helps us to, to understand what this is. Romans 15, 7. Paul says it this way. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Christ has welcomed you. That's what you know. That's the end. At the end of all things, when the end is at hand, when the end, end, end is at hand, what's going to happen is you are going to stand before the Lord and you're going to say, oh, woe is me. And the Lord is going to say, no, 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 I, I got this. I've got you covered. I've put this blood upon you. Welcome in. Come in. Come in and fellowship with me and fellowship with my saints. And it has already started. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Brothers and sisters, the, the verse that was on the front or is on the front of your bulletin this morning is one from Romans as well, where it says this simple statement, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. That is an objectively true statement. Whenever it comes, it's nearer today for you than it was yesterday. We know that the end is at hand. We know what the Lord has done for us. Jesus has risen. He's ascended. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And what that means, if we went back to 1 Peter chapter 1, is that you're safe. You're secure. The inheritance... It's kept in heaven for you. It's secure in heaven for you. It's undefiled. It's unfading. There's nothing that's going to happen to that inheritance. It is there waiting for you. The end of all things is at hand. So be sober-minded and love earnestly and be hospitable in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's your delightful mission. Great God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for counting us into as members through Jesus of your community. 
and in joy and in delight, help us to walk in this way of life that you have set before us, a way that is good and glorifying to you and delightful to us as well. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.